what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> so I could give the stereotypical answer because I definitely wanted to be a rock star. Nice. Um, I used to play guitar when I was a kid and as soon as I learned how to play chords, that was it. I started writing songs and I would definitely spend a lot of time in my bedroom imagining being on stage. Mm. That hasn't worked out, <laughs> unfortunately. But, but actually, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and that's been a bit of a, like a, a challenge in my career um, mm. because like my sister, for example, she knew she wanted to be a teacher. My brother knew he wanted to be a doctor, and and I think it's I think it's great when people know what they want to do because I think you you have that like single minded attitude. Mm. I really didn't didn't know what to do, and um, the only thing I knew at the point where I was kind of deciding what I was going to go do at uni was I really liked um, psychological documentaries and things. So I was like, right, cool, I'll go be a criminal psychologist. There's about five of those in the country, so it's probably not a great plan. And I went to uni and I did applied psychology. And it just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And the one forensic psychology unit was cancelled as well. So I didn't even get to do the unit I, I went there to do. So a bit frustrating. Um, and and in the back of my mind, I just, I kind of just always knew it was going to be something around, like I wanted to help people. Bit, mm. bit of a cliche, but true. But I definitely didn't know how I was going to do that. And so I just sort of fell into 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 jobs and then I realized quite quickly okay you really like working with people you like developing people mm. um pretty good pretty good leader feels a bit arrogant to say but um but I definitely enjoy that kind of working someone and seeing them develop mm. and then yeah my career has taken a bit of a weird t- trajectory but underneath it all has been helping people leading people developing people that's kind of been the the sort of thing that's gone through it all why was it that you you've stuck with adults and sort of working with adults rather than kind of veering off into a teaching kind of trajectory the answer to that my friend is i didn't avoid teaching i actually have been a teacher (laughs) very astute of you um yeah i did i taught for two years at a primary school in bradford um and i did it via um the teach first leadership program okay uh so that was about six years ago and i loved it i mean I think my dad was a teacher, my aunt was a teacher, my cousin was a teacher. So I think there's always a bit of a thing where you resist it. Icky family has a lot of teachers in it. Sister's teacher also. Um, and yeah, it, 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 so when I so when I left uni, I, did, I got a job at a bank. Mm. And then I went to move and I went to stockbrokers. And at some point during that, I found Teach First and I was like, oh, okay, there's a way to do this. I always thought I'd be a high school teacher. Uh, so it was a bit of a surprised to me to be a primary school teacher and like I said I did it for a couple of years uh, and it was amazing like a lot of the time I couldn't even believe this was my job I mean yeah. kids were just hilarious yeah you're doing such cool things but then also really really tough and it, I just I always was like I want to be a great teacher and I didn't have it in me to commit as much as you need to in your personal life yeah. Um, I was in my first year of like properly serious relationship and I was kind of in my late twenties and I just wanted to enjoy my life. Yeah. And and I think teachers are amazing and they have to give up an awful lot of their personal life to uh and do it. And that just wasn't right for me at that time. Mm. Leads, leads, leads. What is happening? Welcome to episode twenty five of Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called now, and an activity called work. My name is Simon and you're listening to my guest Anna Quinn Martin. This is another Zoom interview recorded on the 26th of November 2021. 
Hello again. How's it going? So, did you like that longer intro yesterday? Do you want more of that? Well, you're not getting much waffle today. Remember what I said yesterday and please help me to build this show out. Like, share, follow, subscribe, su- support, support, and record for this podcast. Anna Quinn Martin is a service manager for Lincoln Leeds, which is a citywide free social prescribing service which helps anyone to sort out practical or emotional problems that are affecting their health and well-being. They help around 500 people a month. Anna leads a team of around 50 people who work in the service supporting the people of Leeds. Lincoln Leeds links people to whatever support they need. To find out about Lincoln Leeds, go to linkingleeds.com or follow them on Twitter at Lincoln Leeds. So what is it that you are doing now then? So, so after the teaching, I went to work for Teach First for four years as an operations manager. So that was great. It kind of combined it. Combined it? Combined. Um, it's early. <laughs> it combines what I learned from the world of teaching with my managerial career to that point. Yeah. Uh, and I looked at and went there for four years. Uh, but I was still too far away from directly helping people. That was kind of the thing that bugged me. And it just, it just wasn't fulfilling me as much. I've kind of, I've done my time there and, and I was ready to go do something else. And now I am the service manager for a citywide social prescribing service in Leeds called Linking Leeds mm. and social prescribing is a lot of people don't know what it is uh, yeah. but you basically think of it as like you go to your doctor you've got either practical or emotional problems it's not much the doctor's going to be able to do with that unless they can prescribe you some some medicine uh, that's what they're there that's, what, that's their expertise with social prescribing anything that's going on for you that's affecting your like emotional well-being or like practical problems that are affecting you can be solved with there's loads and loads of services and leads that can help you but the problem is no way for you to go to and like navigate in that yeah if you're like depressed or anxious or don't speak english or don't have access to the internet like how are you going to find that help so the brilliant thing about social subscribing is we give you a well-being coordinator they'll work with you over a series of appointments or figure out what it is that you'll need or motivate you to get it and and then basically look like what needs solvent in your life that's helping to do that. So yeah, I, I became the service manager of that of that service about 14, 15 months ago. Actually got the job right at the start of the pandemic. Resigned from teacher benefits. Stop freezing. You with me? Yes, you're back. You're back. Sorry, yeah, it froze on me. It was really annoying. It was doing this yesterday. It's life, isn't it? This is, this is yeah. the world we live in now. <laughs> um, Sorry, so we're uh, so somewhere within social prescribing, I think we were. Okay, so so yeah, basically, uh, I became became the service manager for, for Leeds Leeds um, about 14 months ago. And I actually got the job at the start of the pandemic, but um, so I resigned from my job. Never resigned from your job until you've got a contract with your new job. That's what I learned. Um and then the new job got paused and I had to wait. But anyway, yeah, 14 months or so I've been doing it. And I didn't, I kind of didn't really know that much about what services were, just to be honest. My yeah. wife worked in services for a couple of years prior to me. So I'd kind of learned a little bit, but I didn't really understand the world of services. Mm. And then became, became the service manager. And it's an amazing world to enter. Um, there is so much stuff going on. Like massive, huge services, and yeah. right down to tiny little community groups that are making a massive difference. So much yeah. going on. Yeah, and I'm just super proud to 
to, to lead this team of people. I've got about 50 people working um, in Lincoln Leeds and they are amazing. What they do every day is absolutely amazing. I mean, how quickly does it take you to sort of mentally, you, you know, kind of fall into the role and mentally map out what all these services are and sort of, you know, that must take some time to kind of, because there'll be services that you know and you're aware of what they do and then you're just encountering a bunch of other organizations and services and it's like, well, what do these guys do and what are they yeah. useful for? And so that must be kind of a continual process because I would imagine some of them come in and out of existence as well, depending on funding and so on. So yeah. it must be like, you, you must have to keep that information, you know, sort of live in your head. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's and like the, the well-being coordinators, they're the heroes, not me. They have to know so much about so many things because really social subscribing, some, a client or a patient coming in can have anything wrong with them or any issue or any, um, emotional problem, whatever it is. It, and especially with the pandemic, like there's a lot of people who need help. Right. Mm. Um, so yeah, so we do have some mechanisms, um, to, to track that kind of thing. I think the team themselves are very good at sharing information. I think that's why it really works because mm. So we've got 45-ish wellbeing coordinators and they are brilliant at sharing information with each other. You should, we've got this like Teams chat mm. and it's kind of meant to be like a bit of a social thing, but honestly, every day it's just, I've got a client with this, what, what, does anyone know what, they, and they're just, they're just sharing knowledge with each other all the time and they're so committed to helping our clients. But yeah, it's an ever-growing thing. And like, you're absolutely right. Some services that come and go, they'll be there for six weeks or it'll just be like a group. Mm. So we're constantly evolving processes and that's really the benefit of it being service like ours because we're able to share that knowledge uh, with each other and find ways to do that um, but a lot of it is the experience that those well-being coordinators build up and then from a management side me and my manager management team and them as well is a lot of just getting out into the community going to people's team meetings telling people about what we do um, and yeah, spreading the word and, and, and asking other people to, to spread the word as well. Mm. I mean, is it, is it quite a busy service? Is it like, are you, do you feel well resourced to do what you need to do? Or is it just a question of like, we always need more resources? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess in terms of the world of mental health provision, we always need more resources. Mm. Um, I think where we're at now, um, we're just about, okay, like we could have 15 more workers and there's the people out there who need that help. Mm. The problem we have is people understanding what social subscribing is and for people referring in, I think doctors, maybe pharmacists, the third sector people, friends and family of people who are struggling and people who are struggling themselves, it's mm. really difficult to ask for help. Mm. And I think people think they need to do an awful lot before they come to us. Mm. So one thing I would say, if anyone's listening and, and knows someone who's struggling or is struggling themselves is we take all the hard work out of that for you. So literally you come to us within a few days, you'll have a, a worker who is completely dedicated to helping you to improve your life. Um, and we don't push anything on you either. Like if you, if you don't want to sort an area of your life out, we're going to make you, it's about what matters to you, you know? Um, so if you come to us and say, there's X, Y, and Z that I would sort in. Um, like, so it might be housing, you might have addiction problems. You might just not have any friends and be lonely. And that's a massive problem for people. 
Mm. Whatever it is, we'll help you navigate it. You might not even know what's wrong with you, right, as well. Yeah. So we'll help you figure that out as well. And uh, whatever actions that, that we put in place, we'll support you to do them as well. So we don't sort of say, right, great, kind of great conversation. Here's a list of things to go do, see you later. Because we understand that for people, ringing somebody up is really difficult or going to an appointment is really difficult. So mm. we'll look for the ways to support you to do that. Um, but yeah, it's an ever-growing, it's an ever-growing bit of knowledge um, that we have to keep track of. And, and during COVID, I think that was our particular expertise. And um, so yeah, once people know about us, they refer it to us. It's just getting that word out there. Okay, so we've, we've mentioned COVID a couple of times. So let's d- delve into that now before we do the other, you know, other questions. So you were in obviously a strange position at the time as we went into lockdown. But um, I mean, if you sort of take us through that that process, and because I've spoke to other services and like other social enterprise, well, not enterprises, but charities and so on, like people that were providing, you know, civil services and social services within the city. And it seemed like most of them could kind of continue on quite quickly. Most of it was like working out furlough and, you know, the, 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 the practical elements of that, but people seem to be quite on kind of, we have to continue the service. We have to let people know that we're there and, and going onto online sort of things quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, did that seem the case as you came into linking leads? Did it seem like they'd, they'd sort of sorted everything else, but it was the more difficult, like who's getting furloughed and what we're going to do with the office things that were more up in the air. I think by the time I came in, a lot of it had been sorted. I did miss quite a sticky period, which I'm not grateful for. <laughs> um, my management team were pretty, um, pretty relieved by the time I came in. They did an amazing job. But for us, actually, I don't think it was too difficult because it was very quickly we realized, okay, we can keep doing what we do and we just need to do it online. And we had, from what I understand anyway, they had the mechanisms to do that. Mm. Obviously, it was difficult on staff because they were losing that personal connection with clients, being able to be in the room with them. Mm. It kind of still worked. I think social subscribing still works whether you're doing it face-to-face or, or online. Mm. It's just easier always, isn't it, to build relationships face-to-face. Um, so there wasn't any furlough situations. The biggest thing for us was because we're um, funded by the clinical commissioning group out of the NHS. So we have really close relationships with our GP surgeries and, and other sort of NHS people. Um, the pressure that was on the NHS was having a direct impact on linking leads. And it kind of worked out quite well in a way, because I guess when the pandemic hit, it wasn't people's first thought to think, I'll go sort out all of those things that are going on in my life. It was kind of just like hunker down and let's get on with it. So, you know, we, we were able to get a little bit involved in supporting the NHS and, and we've done that in, in various ways. So we've, we've had our staff volunteer to go during work time to run or support vaccination clinics. Um, there was some work in the city for clinically extremely vulnerable people. Um, and we took direct referrals from that helpline. Um, we made calls on behalf of some of our surgeries to patients who were more at risk to see how they were doing and if they needed anything and then took referrals into the service. So, and, and it wasn't all perfect and we didn't get it all right and we didn't 
you know, but yeah. it, it was the best we could do at the time. And as it went on, as the situation went on, and once I'd arrived, we were able to do that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Once, I guess once we realized that this pandemic wasn't going anywhere, right? Yeah. So we were able to sort of get a lot more involved in, in helping. And now, now we're in a situation where our referral numbers are kind of where we want them to be. So we are having to pull a little bit away from that, but it's the right time because it's not like, you know, it's not like the NHS is all sorted right now. Obviously, there's still massive pressure on them. But we can help by doing our jobs because actually, if you get social prescribing right, it reduces um, appointments into GP surgeries. It reduces yeah. appointments into A&E. So it's like, we might not be directly helping in that way, but it actually, if you refer your patients to us, um, we'll, we'll be able to, to sort of the things that are going out to them. That's going to mean it's less likely that they're going to need your medical help. Yeah. It does. They're just still really handle Yeah. Because I mean, you know, if you, that's potentially hours and hours saved, isn't it? Of exactly, like, yeah. you know, that capacity could be used for something else now. Yeah, definitely. And some, some people do literally, they go to their GP surgery just to go somewhere, just to have some social connection. And that's like, yeah. that's an awful situation for someone to be in, isn't it? So mm-hmm. if we can help these people to figure out what it, they need to improve their life, get them connected to their community, mm-hmm. get help them to make friends, um, also our practical problems for them, then yeah, they may not ever end up either, either medically unwell or just going to their surgery because they're lonely. Yeah. So what are the, what are the good things about the job that really, the, the things that sort of interest you and keep you doing it? Uh, so many, so many good things. I have to say that because my manager listens to the bed. <laughs> um, I mean, the team are brilliant. I'm so proud of them. Uh, I don't mean that patronizing I just genuinely um, think they're amazing. My management team underneath me, so I've got three locality managers and three seniors, um, do an outstanding job both looking after their teams and building connections across the city, going to various meetings and all sorts of things. They're just brilliant. Such a great group of people who are really committed. Uh, and then the wellbeing coordinators, just a phenomenal bunch of people. I mean, I, I, I say to them all the time, I don't know how they do their job. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're working with people who are really, really in need. Um, and we're not a crisis service, but because, because of COVID mainly, I think so many people who are suffering at the moment that having, having that constant contact with people who need your help is, is really emotionally exhausting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we do, we try and do all sorts of things with our staff and, and make sure that they're okay. And, and we appreciate it. it's a tough job, but that's a huge, huge joy in it. And then, yeah, I guess. Knowing that I'm using my work time doing something that matters, I think is is a great part of it. Um, the actual work of it is is stuff I enjoy. Um, I'm a bit of a a bit of an organizer, so give me a spreadsheet and I'm happy. Um, and then, I mean, some of the people that we work with, it's just seeing what's going on in Leeds is amazing. So we've been yeah. part of projects and. Just as an example, we work with a digital, 100% digital team who are all about um, trying to stop people being digitally excluded. Such a nice bunch of people. There's just, there's just some really lovely people that we come into contact with. And, yeah. um, 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 you know, we have the power to grow it all the time. And seeing, seeing how the service has progressed, us like getting our referral numbers in, how we've helped with other things, planning for the future about better ways that we can help, like all of that, it's, it's good stuff for me. I really yeah. enjoy. Yeah. I, 
a couple of things occurred to me there. So uh, that based on, kind of based on a tweet I saw yesterday of uh, someone kind of asking about burnout in an event. I think it was an arts event and mm. um, like everybody in the audience put their hand up and they were like, oh, I'm really surprised by this. I would imagine it's kind of similar there that even though you're doing something that to a degree is kind of vocational, it's something that you want to do, it's doing good work. It's an exhausting job that you potentially put more hours in than, than you're paid for, or you're not paid for enough hours and that kind of thing. Do you, do people burn out quite a lot? Do you go through sort of people quite fast or is it, is it reasonable? It's a good question. Um, we've had a bit of staff turnover, but I, I don't think that's because of burning out. Mm. And, and I think it's normal. So this sort of job is a good entry level. I mean, the webbing corner is a good entry level job into other things because yeah. I think you find in services there's quite a lot of staff turnover because there's so many jobs you could do and they're quite similar, yeah. a lot of them. Yeah. And then we've had people like some of the management team have gone on to promotions at other places. And I, that's what I want as a leader. So I don't see it as a negative thing. It's a big team. But sometimes it feels like there's a lot of turnover, but I don't think it is. I think it's, it's kind of what you'd expect. Mm. The burning outside of things. So yeah, we try really hard to um, keep our staff give our staff what they need so that that doesn't happen yeah. so we advocate well-being time um we i don't ever expect anyone to work over their hours i don't do that that's something i'd like to teach in when i'm done i'm done there's always more you can do so i just think it, i really believe you've got to stop yeah at some point and that time is when you're not paid for it anymore yeah that's me like that's just how i lead but um i know others will disagree with me so yeah, we don't, we don't advocate working out of hours. We advocate taking breaks. We, we've tried to do things like we did a yoga chair session online for everyone. Mm. So we'll do little interventions like that. But also we will re uh, run reflective practice sessions for staff to come and talk about their clients. We also offer like if they want peer support time. Yeah, supervisions, we talk about well-being. We've obviously got an employee well-being where, you know, where they can get support um, as part of their employment. So I, I think we, we do our best, but the very nature of our staff, like they, they want to help so much and, yeah. and it is hard to draw the line sometimes and know, you know, when, when is it right to let that client go? Cause what we're not trying to do is make people helpless. That's like yeah. the last thing we want to do. So sometimes you do have to say, right, okay, we do as much as we can for you. We've, we've set you up for success and sort of leave it leave them to it but it's much easier for me to say that when i'm not the person with the client in front of me yeah um so yeah i think we talk about well-being a lot um it doesn't seem to be a major issue but i'm not saying we've never had staff go off for, for illness obviously that that happens um i think everybody you know might have taken some personal days over the last couple of years it's not a surprise to me and we also advocate things like regularly taking your annual leave yeah flexible working all that kind of stuff so my kind of philosophy is to support people and make it as easy to work in this job as it possibly can be yeah while still doing what we've got to do you know yeah i i mean is it fair to say that a lot of the no obviously this is for your well-being advisors and so on but i would guess that the difficulties and frustrations of the job come from 
the things, you know, the, the, the things that cause your service users to become service users, you know, it, it's like, well, if this situation wasn't the situation, this person wouldn't have come to the service rather than it's really hard to get anything done because you know, the services and you know what they're there for. And mm. I would imagine you, you're so used to, they're so used to sort of connecting and speaking to these services that they know who they need to speak to there and, and, and how to get through them. So I imagine that side's fairly sound and easy and, and that's the good stuff and the good stuff of like getting a person into those services, into the right place and seeing them sort of develop. Mm-hmm. Um, is that fair? Is it, is it more the hard stuff is the reasons that people come into the service, the things like the isolation and stuff? Um, I think it depends. So it's, I mean, the system is broken. Mm. Like there's no, nobody to tell you any different. And, and I'm not going to say what that's about, but you know, whether it's funding or, you know, the world's a bit stretched, right? So mm. there isn't enough of what we need. So that is massively frustrating. And I don't want to give the wrong impression. We can't force services to see accolades any quicker than they would have done. It's yeah. just about us knowing they're there and how to get into them and which service. Because the thing is, like, even if you know what you need, let's say you, you know what service you need, you go to it. If you don't fit their criteria, you're very quickly going to fall through the cracks. So for us, it's about making sure that that doesn't happen. So I think it's really frustrating. There's this balance all the time that the wellbeing coordinators have to have between knowing that it, what's there for them, but maybe not being able to get it for them as quickly as we'd like, because yeah. most services are overprescribed. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, definitely the other side of it is like day-to-day speaking to people who are in, not crisis, because we're not crisis service, but often it's pretty close to crisis, mm. um, or, or severe mental health issues, or just a, a number of complex problems and they're very down or anxious or whatever, like that day in, day out is very, very tough. Mm. I think you've just got to be, the only thing I can think of, you've just got to be the kind of person who wants to do that mm. um, to be able to do it. I don't think I could do it, to be honest. I have massive respect for them. I think they're amazing. So yeah, it's a bit of a combination of all those things you've said. Um, mm. We do, however, build relationships with certain services, which means that maybe we get information a little bit more regularly from them. Mm. And therefore we know what's going on and we can refer in. So that, yeah, it's definitely about keeping, growing that knowledge all the time about what we can refer into and sharing it with each other. Because if we all worked separately, you know, there wouldn't be that knowledge sharing. So that's really powerful. It's definitely not perfect, you know. Okay. So I want to bring this on to you for a bit then. So in terms of kind of metrics and numbers that you've got to hit and the kind of accounting that you've got to do, because obviously you're doing something that, you know, it's qualitative, not quantitative sort of thing. So, um, evidencing what you're doing and how successful you are is obviously always difficult. Um, how is that? I mean, is it just made based on the amount of service users that you see and then their satisfaction ratings or how do they measure it? Yeah, so we're we're a contracted service, so we have certain measures that we have to hit. It's quite funny because I was talking to my team the other day about there's a bit of a myth I think that I'm obsessed with our targets and things, and actually I'm obsessed with client experience. And if we get our client experience right, our targets sort of sort themselves out. Yeah, but I think when you're talking about 
um, targets and stuff, staff members, they, they naturally feel uh, like worried. I think everyone's got a little bit, like I do as well, a little bit of like, am I going to be found out not not being able to do yeah, that? Yeah. So I think that kind of plays into a lot of these conversations. Because I was saying to them the other day, like, I don't put any pressure on my managers. My managers don't put any pressure on them, but it can feel like pressure. Mm. And personally, my personal view is that if we do right by our clients, KPIs will look after themselves. However, we obviously do have certain things that we've got to hit, and it's my responsibility to hit them. So we measure things like, yeah, how many referrals do we get? Where are we getting them from? What, like, how quickly are we contacting the client? Are we putting actions in place? And if so, how quickly are we doing them? And how quickly they come into the service? So it's kind of, they're all quality measures. Yeah. And then we also have kind of targets to hit around diversity because it's really, really important that we are helping people in all communities and all types of people. Uh, We want everybody to feel that this is for them. Um, So if you wouldn't want to come to our service because you think it's not for gay people or it's not for black people or, you know, or a- any barrier that you might have, we want to make sure they're not there. So we track our diversity numbers for two reasons, really. One is to make sure that we are helping all communities, especially really, really deprived communities. Yeah. And then the other side of it is if we don't know you as a person, then we've not really done our job because a huge part of that initial conversation is building trust with you and to know you really well. So if you're not willing to tell us who you are, then that's a chance that that conversation hasn't gone really well. And then the last thing we do is, yeah, we get, we have some assessment measures to basically see have they made an improvement from what we've done with them. That's obviously really important. And then we do client feedback. Uh, So at the end of the process, they'll deliver like a feedback form with us. And universally, almost exclusively, it's really, really positive. Yeah. Um, the things that our clients say at the end of the journey are amazing. And we share those back with not only our partners and commissioners, we'll share it back with the staff as well, because they are making difference. That's what the data shows basically. Um, so yeah, I'd love to live in a world where we don't have targets and things. Um, but I honestly believe if we do right by our clients, then yes, they take care of themselves. So it's just finding that balance all the time. Mm. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things that I'm thinking of from that. One of, one of them is in terms of, and, and obviously this might be a slightly unfair question and you might have to kind of step around it or whatever. Um, but with, with the data and that data sort of going up to, you know, whoever is your funding people, what do they do with it? Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, what, what, what is the ultimate goal with, with from their perspective of like is it just hit these numbers every year and sort of you know do more with less less or whatever they want to you know the the way that they want to do it is there is there a point that these numbers kind of come back and seem to inform things or is it just you're reporting and the numbers that they want you to report on kind of change and the targets change does it seem to you like this information feeds back and helps actually yeah, but probably not in the way that um, I've really thought about this. I'm going to do a question. It, it is for a purpose because if you, so, so any organization has X amount of money, right? NHS is an organization with X amount of money. They have to spend that money 
in the right way. Mm. So the numbers ultimately prove the service is worth being there, either because we're helping the right communities or we're helping the right number of people or we're taking the pressure off leads as a city. Mm-hmm. So I do believe that there is a purpose to those numbers because they're saying, I, I, it's my way of saying, look, our service matters. And if you took our service away, this many people would suffer for these many reasons. Mm. Like on a day-to-day basis, it's probably not as much, but like overall, for example, our contract was for three years and then an extra two years if, if we've done a good job and, and we've got that extra two years. Mm. Uh, now that means that's two more years for people of Leeds to have our support. And like I say, we're not the only people, but I do think we're a gateway for a lot of people to get what they need. Mm. Um, so yeah, from that point of view, it's massively important. There's the odd detail here and there that I sometimes question how useful that is. But in the, in the main, I think we have to have those measures to show to show our worth, really, and to prove that that money is better spent. Because they could, they could, for example, put all of that money into other roles, directly to GP surgeries or into something else that's not social prescribing. I think social prescribing, and I know I'm a bit biased, that's what I do, but I do think social prescribing is the answer to an awful lot of problems mm. that, that not only leads, but generally people have. Um, so, because the real difficulty with this world is there's so much going on but it is often very, very separate. And there are organizations and, and groups like us who are trying to pull things together. It's a bit of a minefield, to be honest. Well, and as well, if, if you've got yourself into a situation of loneliness for whatever reason, you know, like some form of isolation, then like you say, picking up the phone or getting on the bus or whatever, it's just, you know, it can seem impossible because yeah. it's just, yeah. So, and, and getting... You know, if someone takes the step of going to a doctor or whatever, quite often the doctor, like you say, is kind of, well, I don't know what to do. You know, <laughs> have some drugs. Um, and it's, you know, they've only got like five minutes, minutes haven't they? they? recommend them. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's five or 10 minutes. And I really feel for doctors because it's like a revolving door, isn't it? Of, of yes. people in need. And how are they meant to know? I mean, I say this to all like third sex organizations whether you, or, or, or medical people. Like if you're a housing support worker, there's already loads that you need to understand about housing support. How are you also meant to know about addiction and debt and community groups and loneliness? And, you know, it's like, it's impossible. So that's the pressure that social training should take off people. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty difficult. And I think, I think it's the kind of job as well. That you, you need that information in your head because, you know, it's not a Google search like, it is a Google search to a degree, mm. but that's not what the service is about. The service is about engaging with that person and helping, you know, it's as much about helping them understand how to do it for themselves. Yeah. Of like, you know, okay, well, we're going to go through, I'm going to try this service first and this will refer you to this. And once you've seen someone do that, you know, yeah. if you get in that situation again, ideally you can do that for yourself. Yeah. So it's this, just a Google search. This is a bit of a bugbear of mine. Because a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of people obsessed about us across Leeds in various groups about tracking all things that are going on in Leeds. And that is good work and, and we're probably going to be part of that. Um, but actually, it's one thing knowing that that thing exists. It's a whole other story going or, or ringing. For some people, phoning up to make an appointment is 
like they just can't do it. And to be honest, I've I've had my own, you know, like most people, my own issues with mental health. And if you're depressed or anxious or whatever, the last thing that you're going to want to do is take that really vulnerable step to walk in the door of a community group that you want to join. It's really, really hard. I don't think you can underestimate how hard that is. And then also we've all had, we've all been locked up for (laughs) so long that actually I think people's insecurities and difficulties with with going out into the world have probably increased. Mm. I think the safety in home. And so if you get locked into your bone for a few months, it's harder and harder to go out. And I also think it's a bit, some people have a very stereotypical idea of who it is that needs help. When actually you could be like 85 year old, lovely lady living in an Afro area of Leeds, got house, you home, your car, everything's fine. You've not seen anyone in six months. That's just as much of a problem for that person as someone who's got a lot of complex issues at 21. So uh, I think people asking for help is, is the first barrier, but the huge second barrier is where do I even start once I've accepted that I need some help? That is probably the point where most people will stop. Yeah. And like you say, is because there are so many services, it, it, you know, it is a minefield. It is, and it's overwhelming, you know, because there's just so many things. It's like, well, where do I start? Yeah. I suppose, what was the other thing I was going to say there? I uh, can't remember. It's gone. Um, it might come back to me. Come on. <laughs> um, so I'll go on to, I, I think this leads quite neatly into kind of, so it's basically what are the bad things, but I've chosen to reframe it in a kind of more positive way. So if you could do whatever you want, if there were three things you could change about work right now, what, what would they be? Other than being paid like three times as much and all my staff being paid three times as much and it's having three times as much resources yeah oh god that'd be a bit of a nightmare on it with so many more people to look after now um okay what would i change i think the first thing i would change is is that right be careful what you say here on um i think the it's it's a proper battle getting people to believe in social prescribing it's a bit political. You've got people who have worked in a medical model their whole life and we're coming along and saying, we can help. And then I think a lot of people go, no, you can't. It's, it's medical, medical. And the police understand it's their fault. Mm. But I would, if I could change the hearts of my people to believe in social prescribing, that would be, a, that is a massive thing. Mm. Um, I know it works. I see it. My staff see it. It's not perfect, but nothing in services is ever going to be perfect. Mm. Um, but yeah, I would, I would definitely change that. Mm. I think the second thing is because we have so many people who are interested in what we do. So we've got everybody within the NHS, other third sector services, and, and pretty much anyone else you can think of in Leeds who's trying to do something. Mm. We get pulled in a million different directions. And I can feel like me and my team are doing a great job but there's always going to be somebody where we're not doing that thing that they wanted us to do. Mm. And it's really difficult for us because what we're trying to do all the time is keep pure to what social prescribing is Mm. and help out where we can with other things. But we also need to look after our staff and make sure that they're not overworked. Mm. Uh, uh, And so it can be a very difficult balance for me. Uh, You know, we've got very enthusiastic people around us wanting us to do things, but Mm. a lot of it is, 
not what social prescribing is there for. So myself, my management team have to spend an awful lot of time justifying what we're doing or, or saying, you know, we'd love to help you with that, but we can't because of this. And it, and it, it can feel like we're saying no to things. And I think that just help us reputationally. Yeah. Um, but I've got a, you know, I've got a, a service and a, a team of staff to protect and go protect our clients as well, because yeah. if you go off and do a bunch of other things that isn't social prescribing, then that's 500 people a month who aren't getting social prescribing. Mm. So yeah, I'd love to, uh, I'd love, I'd love for that to be a bit, a bit more understood. It's, it's personally quite a difficult job because it feels like criticism a lot. Mm. I mean, no, no one likes to criticize. So we're going along thinking we're doing, you know, as good a job as we can. It's a bunch of flawed human beings, but we just seem to get a lot of criticism and I don't think it's justified a lot, but it, but to that person, we're not doing what they think we should be doing. Yeah. And also they're competing over, you know, the limited funds of like, well, yes, if we could have that funding. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely that. That's the thing. And then I guess the other thing is I'd, I'd love, and this is more personal to me, um, I just love more, more time, but not as in over, overworking my hours, mm. more time to be strategic and to be doing more of the leadership stuff that I love. My first few months, I mean, honestly, massive firefight. And then that was to do with COVID and it was to do with things that had come before me. It's, it's all, it's all in history. And, um, but it's still a job where like, and I'm super organized and efficient. That's, that's my thing, mm. but it's still a job where it's like, there's not enough time for that stuff. I'm starting to get there now. I'm starting to work my leadership team. Um, I'm starting to get more into that side of things again. That feels really good for me because the more leadership I can do, the more leadership they will do. That has a direct effect on not only on staff, but clients. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's just, it just feels like there's always more to be asked of you. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. It's one of those areas as well, where it's like the work is always to be done. You know, it's kind of like yeah. washing up as soon as you've done it, you've got to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. And it's frustrating because I'm like, I'm huge into, like, I'm obsessed with Brené Brown and, and listen to all of her podcasts. I mean, this is like a dream for me right now. I, I feel like I'm, I'm imagining that you'll have her. I hope that's okay. And <laughs> I'm fun with me. On her podcast. And I've read all our books. And, and not only that, but she talks to people who've written books and I read their books and mm. bought some of those books for our leadership team. They use it like a library. Um, so yeah, I just want to be doing that stuff all the time. Mm. But of course, the like budget stuff goes. But you know, that's all right. Cause I get to play about spreadsheets. So that's my other happy place. <laughs> Give me a spreadsheet to mess around with all day. If that was a job, that would be my job. Definitely. Okay. Let, let's dip into this a little bit because you can see a good person to, to do it with. Why is that so enjoyable? Do you think it's having, having the control over it? Is it the control? Well, I can put this thing here and that thing there and I can make this look neat and these can all, what is it? I feel like you just drilled into my psyche right there. <laughs> if you understood it, I don't need to answer. Yes. <laughs> I think it's about control. It's about control. It's about making things look pretty. Yeah. So I've said many, many times, give me a job where the job title is, I won't swear, but messing around with spreadsheets. I mean, I'm not even that good. Like some people, it's like levels isn't the same. Oh, people can't do anything. Some people yeah. do very, very basic. I'm somewhere in the middle and then there's like genius level people. Yeah. Um, but to me, it's like, make it pretty. Make, I just love messing around with like maths and 
stats. And when I do my quarterly report, as much as I complain about it every three months, yeah. there is a bit of me that's loving it because I'm just in spreadsheet world. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it is, control. It's tidy and it's methodical. Mm. And I like things that are tidy. Tidy spreadsheet, tidy mind. Yeah. Yeah, and you can get on with it. You know, you can you yes. can happily plow away. So you, you, you're there, you made up. It's like, yeah. I don't need to worry about anything else. And it's involves like anybody else. And I don't mean that yeah. badly. I love my team, but sometimes just to like focus on something, like put a bit of music on, mm. focus on a spreadsheet and I don't have to speak to anyone. Like some days I'm just in a place where that's the best thing for me. Mm. You can get precious though with these things because you've designed them and you've spent time. Dude. Like same with formatting word documents like i've ever gone through a word document and formatted it yeah okay and, and you get sort of obsessed with like this one has to be in this style and this height dude it like, changes some yeah <laughs> i think we've i think we're kindred spirits i think we've we've realized here there's a bond yeah don't mess with my formatting i'm all about making things pretty and sometimes that's important like if it's grounding and you want you know i want mm. If my guys are presenting about the service, I want it to be branded and it look professional. Although I think some people think I'm a bit too corporate. Yeah. Do get that criticism a little bit, but I did come from a corporate background, so I can kind of there's good bits to corporate as well. But yeah, I'm like I've made that thing look really pretty. And the funny thing is, I was talking to our data guy James about this the other day. You've created the thing, so you completely understand it, and you like like Excel and all this stuff. I've had a few times in my career where I've taken that same document to my whatever team at the time, and they've been like looking at it like it's a foreign language or yeah. I'm like, this is really obvious and simple. What's the thing? I've made it completely beautiful and perfect. And they're like, I don't even know where to start. Literally the perfect for me. Yes. <laughs> didn't involve anybody else. This is my perfect thing. Don't touch it. It's where my most controlling aspect of my personality comes out. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to, I think we've done COVID. So I'll go on to kind of the more political questions now. Um, so, uh, we'll start with Brexit. Um, so has, or have you been able to notice, has Brexit changed your work at all? As far as you've seen, do you see it being likely to change the work that you're doing? What we're starting to see, and I actually don't know if this is Brexit or not. We'll definitely start to see problems with recruitment. I'm, I'm going to assume that's to do with Brexit. And I'm not going to pretend to be a political genius because I'm not, but um, I do think that's a, a direct consequence. And that will become a real problem before too long because the last thing I want to do is have clients waiting for our help. Mm. I mean, a lot of a lot of services do have wait lists. And there's nothing else I can do about it, but I, I would like us not to get into that position, I'd like us to grow. But if there aren't staff, if there are people willing to come and do this work, then that's going to get tricky. Now, what's interesting is, six months ago we'll get like 80 applications for a job yeah now now we might only get a handful so it's it's a pretty stark difference and it's something that you know i've heard within within our industry and other industries is becoming a problem we obviously saw it with the with petrol didn't we the petrol crisis yeah. um <laughs> it was really ironic but We'd like literally filled up about two days before that happened and we, we didn't know it was coming or anything. We felt very like, I go for that. Um, very smug with our full tank of petrol. But yeah, like it's, um, that's the only way I think it's affected us. I think, I think, but, but I suppose 
suppose there's always been a huge underserving of mental health services and the like. So with COVID and Brexit, no doubt that just means there's less and less money. So I guess that's the yeah, that's the other area where that's going to continue to hit us over a long period of time. Mm. Um, I remember Bill Bailey sort of talking about Brexit and kind of saying, talking about, you know, when in a restaurant or a bar or whatever, someone drops a load of glasses and everyone goes, hey, so it's kind of like that. That's what we've done as a country. It's like, oh, we've done a Brexit. Way. Yeah. And now what? My sister was on a bus like the day after Brexit, the day after we voted to be out. And these two teenagers, <laughs> this just said something like, great, we can get all of these, all of these people out of our country. Mm. And I was just like, first of all, that's a disgraceful statement. Second of all, it's not going to work like that sunshine. What's actually going to happen is you're going to struggle to go. You're going to be stuck in a long queue at the airport. That's how this is going to affect you. Like, it's just infuriating. I honestly, I mean, I don't know whether we're too much into it, but I honestly just don't think we should ever have been given that choice without a balanced, uh, a balanced set of information. I don't think it should ever have been a thing where it was this party versus this party. It should have been like, yes, let's let people make the decision. But here's an unbiased set of set of information that tells you exactly what we think is going to happen. Mm. This is what drives me mad about. Again, I'm going to mention Brené Brown. Like I said, obsessed. She's always she always talks about. Gosh, can I just get sued for mentioning her or the thing? That'd almost be exciting, wouldn't it? Because I get to be in like, a courtroom with her. And depression. <laughs> Do something to no. right. So um she's always talking about how if you divide people, then there's no compassion. So yep. we do it, you see it with racism, sexism, different countries. Mm. So when we have this idea of us versus them, mm. then suddenly nobody is a human being and it's very easy to be really unpleasant to people. Mm. And instead, if we go human being to human being, like let's say that you um super racist and then you met let's say a black person, and you got on with them, suddenly they're a human, they're not black. So you melt down the um, distrust and everything once it's human being to human being. And I just feel like with political parties, it's always about, you know, red versus blue or whatever, rather than what actually matters. It just drives me mad. I was thinking the other day, wouldn't it be great if we just didn't have political parties? And, and it was all based on collaborative ways of working. But I think I see this in my job as well. Mm. Like the NHS versus third sector, mm. they are different cultures. Mm. And I'm not going to say who's good and who's not, it's not as simple as that. But trying to, my, my job is often trying to put those two cultures together and find a way through. Mm. And I'm like in the middle of all just going, hey guys, let's work together. <laughs> it's really hard. And my staff feel that as well. You know, they're often invited to meetings and not really maybe listen to or, or empowered to, to talk about stuff. So oof, I feel like I went off a bit of a rant there. That's all right. <laughs> what happens it's when it breaks it? Yeah, yeah. No, well, hey, it can send people off radio. I, I, I was talking to someone and they were like, oh, can we get off Brexit now? <laughs> <laughs> they just like taught themselves into just misery with it. Yeah. Well, it does. I mean, if I'm honest, it makes me feel really sad about the world. And I know that like human beings are flawed, like we're meant to be flawed. I don't, I don't think there's anything 
knew about that statement, but uh, it, it does make me sad. Um, it does make me sad about about people. But again, it's it's not people, is it? It's people in fear that make these decisions. They're in fear for their job, or they're in fear yeah. for, or in pain and anger. You know, like that. I mean, it, it's all relevant to what whatever rubbish is put in front of our eyes by whatever yeah. algorithms. But I remember reading early on. You know, like largely that was a vote against David Cameron. Yeah. It was a vote against what was going on and the way that we were going and so on. Um, it was a foolish thing by him. And then there was like, you know, with like the Scottish independence referendum, there was, it had to be 60%. You know, there, there was an amount that like, if, if this is, this is going to change our direction and our policy, then it has to meet these criteria. They cut loads of people out of the vote. They... You know, like the whole thing was kind of shambolically run, but that's politics, you know. Oh, shambolically. Yeah, well, it is. It's <laughs> a thing, isn't it? Until someone's, until someone, I mean, it's not one person is willing to, to actually blue sky think, cause I hate that phrase, but like blue sky think the whole system, mm. it's not going to change. I, I've experienced this when I witnessed somebody get divorced and I, and I was like looking at paperwork. I was like, who has not updated this paperwork? It's like archaic. But that's the thing, isn't it? So much to fix in the world that, you know, people aren't going to choose things that are really difficult to fix often. And the whole political system is not just our country. I mean, God, compared to most countries, it's amazing. Um, our whole political system is based on us not to be told the truth. Like if you see politicians being interviewed, you can see them not tell it, like trying to find a way to not tell the truth or not to be honest. Yeah. And like the only way we're ever going to move forward is if people just stop. It, it, it's become, I may have copied this with Brené Brown. Do you think if we like tweet Brené Brown in this, she'll listen to it and then she'll invite me on hers? Maybe both. Maybe. Maybe. I need to write a book or something. Anyway. But, um, oh, no, I've totally forgotten what I was going to say. She's definitely not going to let me on if I can't remember what's into. What was I saying? Uh, I don't know. I've forgotten now. So you were talking about wood. Oh, I remembered. Yeah. Yes. Back on. Yeah. Yeah. She was saying that politics, and she was talking about America, but I think it's true here, has become more about the long-term popularity of the individual politician than the party itself. And I think that's true. It's like, do we like Boris rather than do the values of the whole party or the team? Those are the things that are important to us, mm. you know. Um, we need we need our government to be better because it's you know there's horrific things going on in that country. However, it affects our lives. Yeah, it's, but what yeah, what I try to remember is us, yeah. it is just human beings, though, and that's what I mean about you know the when we say it was and then like when you go, government is terrible, politicians are terrible. You have forgotten that they are human beings doing their best. And they will have the same fears and vulnerability and not wanting to be caught out as we do. Mm. So it's no wonder they get a lot of it wrong. Just like we get stuff wrong in our jobs, you know? Yeah. But yes. It's, it's, not, it's a lot more at stake, isn't it? Yeah. What they get wrong is potentially could lead to the extinction of the species, shortens yeah. our lives, reduces the standard of our quality of living. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm going to flip the other way now. I'm going to go... Um, or should we keep it 
since it's gone dark outside and it's a bit gloomy. It has gone really dark, hasn't it? Yeah, let's keep it a little bit gloomy for a bit. We'll do climate change and then we'll come to universal basic income to finish on. So um, what, if any, or what thinking can you do around climate change in your workplace? Like, do you have a climate policy? Do you like, do you have any sort of green policies, the things that you're trying to do? Um, what, how do you think your work fits into a kind of green agenda or greening your workplace or that kind of thing? Um, I mean, oh God, in my dark, it's gone. Um, and not the podcast, the yeah. <laughs> um, I don't, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't think we have an, or I think we're quite a green service anyway. Like a lot mm. of what we do is, you know, we're not traveling places, we're doing it online and where we are traveling, it's people where they live, you know, yeah, it's, all community based. it's, it's the whole point is that we see our clients in their communities and staff generally live within that community or fairly close to it when we're not. We're not sending people on airplanes anywhere or anything, you know, so it's, um, it's pretty great. But we, what our part of it maybe is more about is there's being green things to socially prescribe to. So there's quite a lot of funding going into green social prescribing and whether that's sending people to do community walks, gardening, woodwork outdoors, climbing trees. Well, they're not climbing trees, maybe a dangerous, but you know what I mean? Like things outside in nature. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of funding going into that kind of stuff now. So we have some like projects around that um, and we're trying to get a little bit more involved. We spent a little money on greed social subscribing. Our team went and did um, a day at Skeleton Grange, which is one of our partners through a project and um, just doing green social subscribing activities so they could experience what it was like. I think we've all seen in during COVID, the power of getting outside. I mean, our daily walk became absolutely crucial and actually just something we start to really enjoy. So, so from that side of things, it's not really climate change as such, but I guess if you are encouraging people to be outdoors and, and doing things in nature, you're naturally supporting that. Um, but yeah, I don't think really we have much else to, uh, to contribute well, that's a big thing i think you know yeah. and, and a lot of the greed agenda is kind of about localism and local services which is you already do it you know? yeah exactly exactly yeah i mean and and just making people happier having them more ingrained in their community one of the things that that you find if you get social subscribing right is people get more into their community and then they start setting up things as well yeah so it has like a really positive knock-on effect yeah um so, you know, I, I do believe that if communities work better together, they, they, the outcomes of that community will be more positive and that's bound to have a positive effect on kind of all things. I can't specify exactly on climate change, but, um, yeah, yeah. but people even just to appreciate nature is surely going to mean that they're more willing to engage in, in what it means to, to, to move towards better climate, but it's such a massive thing, isn't it? scans the whole out of me mm. yeah well I, and that, that's the other thing as well it's, it's um you know people talk about the mental health crisis and i think a large part of it is because we have to live in a world where we're not able to talk about what's real yeah. you know but it's just like we have to pretend climate change is not happening and we have to pretend that we're not doing anything about it other yeah. than making it worse we have to pretend that you know Edward Snowden doesn't exist. We have to pretend that the WMDs were founded. It's kind of like, but <laughs> that, that, 
that disconnect at that level, because it's so prevalent, I think that has such an effect on people. Yeah. Like, from going down QAnon rabbit holes to, you know, to being severely depressed to, to sort of everything in between. I think that's a huge, a huge factor in it. And the fact that, you know, you see it more now, but the, there doesn't seem to be spaces for people who are like, this climate change thing is pretty terrifying, isn't it? To have that discussion, you know, yeah. and, and the discussion always seems to be kind of, oh, well, we have to do some recycling or we have to go vegan or we have to. It's like, well, why can't we stop companies pouring sewage into our rivers instead? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a real, I mean, holding people to account is not what we do. We blame people instead. There's a big difference between that. I'm mm. certain person saying that. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure she's going to employ me after this. So that's what I'm aiming for. For anybody out there listening, I mean, not that I'd leave Lincoln Leeds, I'm saying I've stood projects. Um, yeah, I think it's terrifying. I think people are really scared. I think when people are scared of things, they avoid it. Mm. That seems to be human nature that I've noticed. So, and I think we do feel powerless. And a lot of people don't trust the system, right? So what we are talk about politicians not telling the truth. I guess some people think, why should I believe climate change? I don't believe anything else they're saying. Yeah. And I think because it's terrifying, we avoid it and we go, this isn't true. Yeah. Um, and it takes, it takes collective responsibility, which I think is the hardest thing to achieve. Because again, human beings, I think intrinsically we're pretty flawed, pretty selfish. We just are, and that's not our fault. That's just what human beings are. Um, so to create collective responsibility is, is pretty difficult. And you you do you do think, and kind of thought it, and I feel ashamed to say it, but you do think, why bother if anyone else is? And then you yeah. them everyone else. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm doing my bit. I haven't got any kids, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm not vegan. I'll consider it, but I, I pretty much like cheeseburgers too much, so that's going to be difficult. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is, isn't it? And you know, I think we can we can also shame ourselves a lot. We're not doing enough, but then you know that all that shame leads to is more shame. And and you are absolutely right that nobody is willing to talk about, or well, not many people are willing to talk about how they really feel about things. And I'm just as bad for that as anybody. Um, trying to be like vulnerable with people and say, you know, this is what I'm scared of. And, you know, I need help here. And it's hard because our society yeah. says, like, look at Instagram, look at Facebook. Sorry, I'm not meant to mention mm -hmm. things. Um, like, look how perfect my life is. Yeah. That's the message, isn't it? Don't be weak. So, Keep going. Weak. Face the grind. Work all the hours. I mean, do it perfectly. I, look perfect. Like, yeah. yeah. Do you remember in the 90s when it was sort of, I think it was Windows 95, um, and all the advertising was like, Work smarter, not harder. What what happened to that? Where yeah. did that go? Yeah, that was just like work harder, work harder, work harder, work harder. I, I, that, that, all the yeah. time for no money, just work. Everybody's obsessed with saying how busy they are. So busy, yeah. so busy. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm I'm taking some time for myself. I have to. I have to do that because yeah. I'm not willing to live like that anymore. I've done myself a lot of damage trying to live up to and, and it's still something I struggle with but just trying to live up to like society's expectations of mm. both women and people I think you know men are told you've got to be strong women are told look pretty and do everything don't make it look like it's hard work mm. um, and you know the values that I have I can't do anything about as such but like those values are part of our society aren't they so when you actually say 
want to take a bit of time for myself. <laughs> so often people aren't very good at that. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's so much going on. We're such complex people, aren't we? Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, you know, we, we, because we're pattern spotters, we kind of want everything to fit neatly into a nice little box, but that's not the reality. And we're Spreadsheet, like, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> nice boxes and tidy colours. Yeah. Yeah. And you want nice tidy reports and you want a nice row of neat numbers that make sense and you don't have to worry about anything else. But, you know, people are behind that and there's a whole mess of emotions and crazy actions and all sorts of wild things going on yeah okay so we'll go into slightly happier territory here um so i want to discuss a universal basic income so if there was a ubi would you still work and if you would still work would you still do the same job so you'd be getting paid you know like a stipend of uh, enough to live on each month would you still be interested in doing the same role <laughs> I'll just chuckle at that. Uh, It's kind of different, yeah. But (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I'm a bit, one of my major character flaws, uh, and I have several, is being obsessed with money and having having as much money as possible. I think it gives me a sense of safety. So I can be money-oriented. Having said that, I earned more than before I came to this job. Like when I went into teaching, I could cut my salary in half. So I can't be that money oriented because I've made other choices. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can say yes to that honestly. What I would love is that I just think what people are paid is messed up. Mm. So, like I said to my team sometimes, like well-being coordinators, like they should earn as much as me. Nurses, doctors. But also the people who you just don't see that are doing a really, really, really tough jobs all the time because like hair workers and nurse people working nursing homes. My mum was a nurse and, and mid, um, midwife, uh, matron in a nursing home for a lot of years. These jobs are so important and you need to be such a special person to do them. But working at like a bank, and there's nothing wrong with that work. Those people well, are doing, you know, doing a great job. But they need to exist. They need to exist. But like, why do we place importance on or, or, or financial reward on that job? And the person who's wiping your grandmother's bum and looking after in hospital or, or wherever and, and, and not, you know, not being paid anywhere near that amount. It's all, it's all about where the money's at, isn't it? But mm. I think, I don't necessarily think that I don't know if I agree with the principle of of the the single salary or whatever you want to call it, but I do think the way that we reward certain types of jobs needs needs really looking at. Yeah. I just think, yeah, care worker in in a home earning hardly anything. Uh, what they're doing is so much more important to people. Um, but yeah, we need the financial systems. We need all of that good stuff as well. So it's it's definitely easier said than than done. Yeah, but we don't need to reward them for you know losing half the world's wealth and things like that. <laughs> Those kind of behaviours aren't good. Sensing some sensing some anger. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. It's people, isn't it? I keep coming back to this. I know maybe like you know, such a defender of people, but um, you know everybody's just a, a scared little child, really, and. I think we need more empathy, but 
we also need accountability. Yeah. That's the bit that's missing. What we do is we blame rather than hold people to account. Yeah. 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 And the blame is placed on like individuals rather than on the systems that have made those individuals take those actions and incentivize yeah. them to take those actions. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're up for a, a massive bonus or whatever it is, you're not going to do, you know, for the collective conscience, we're not going to accept that. You're going to, you're going to take it and you're going to buy a sports car. Mm. Where's my sports car? That's why I was up. Mm. Where's my boat? I want a boat. Well, like a big, like a yacht boat or like a little. No, no, like, no, not like a huge boat, you know, in that typical working class, like, I don't want much. Don't worry, I'm absolutely, we were watching them. Um, <laughs> I just want to win a million on the last year. I don't want to. Oh, I know. It's so funny that when you had that conversation about how quickly you've spent it, and then you're like, oh, maybe we need two million, actually. Uh, me and my wife could get proper stressed about that. And then we're like, we haven't actually won anything. What are we talking about? We were once watching this thing about super yachts. You can cut this out. It's not interesting. What's this thing about super yachts? And they were talking about uh, putting them into the ports at Monaco. Mm. And they went, this size of yacht is so big that you can't port it at Monaco. And my wife just went, well, I don't think we'll get that one then. And I was just like, I don't think we're buying any super yachts, babe. This is an outworld. Um, <laughs> But yeah, you also, I don't know if you've ever had this conversation where you start talking about how bad it is for people to win money and how miserable that people have like mm. killed themselves. Mm. And you talk about it for half an hour and then someone goes, yeah, but if you still won the lottery, would you take it? And you're like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Can't all agreed. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it comes back to what you said. It's the security, isn't it? Yeah. It's like you, basically you're living in an in uncertain, insecure world and there's lots of systems there to kind of make it feel nice and cozy. And if you've got a nice family support network and friendship support network and you're, you know, you earn a reasonable amount, you're going to feel fairly secure. Mm. But if you're under those sort of thresholds, then that insecurity rises. I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I think that you feel it even if you do earn a fair amount. Yeah. I, well, that's, that's what it seems to be. A lot of those people that are rich, you know, I saw something where they were like, Oh, well, I, I just don't have enough money because I'm not as rich as Jeff Bezos. So, you know, if I lost my hundreds of millions, like I could lose my hundreds of millions, but, yeah. and then what? I need more money. You just, I think people just spend what they have, however big and small that is, they'll, they'll always spend up to it. I think that's human nature, but yes, of course, people who are earning nothing or unemployed or only come to benefits and those benefits change or like whatever. Yeah, of course, they, you know, the amount of things that they're dealing with and the amount of problems that that cause, those cause, like it, it, it's, it grows all the time. One thing leads to another, to another, which is why I think people get, you know, in such a place of difficulty because it's like, once you're in that place, you wouldn't even know where to start. Like if you've got a job and a house and, you know, a, a, fa a fairly stable life, at least it's not causing you other problems. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'm not going to pretend that, that it's the same because it isn't. I think it's the amount of other things that that and other stresses that having any sort of financial problem can cause you. Let's just flip this a little bit because uh, this is something that I've been thinking about recently. So you're working in an area where, you know, you're trying to help people, you're trying to make their lives better and so on, and then kind of ease their suffering. Now, and 
we've mentioned sort of Instagram and Facebook and stuff and they're kind of, um, you know, you see on Instagram, a lot of these, um, kind of affirmations and positive affirmations and this kind of thing, um, like self-help motivations and so on. What do you think about the area of, I, I mean, struggles necessary to a degree, like we all go through adversity and we kind of have to, because you kind of, you have to deal with situations. You have to learn from situations. You have to grow and life can't be all good stuff. Um, because otherwise you wouldn't know what the good stuff was and so on. So how do you feel about that kind of struggle side? Like, I don't know how to formulate a question out of it, but, um, yeah, is it like that? Are we really helping people if we're stopping them struggle? Well, I suppose, yeah. I mean, if you got to the point of if someone's in trouble and the first thing that they do is they come through to you, is that always helpful or is it sometimes not helpful? I don't know. No. What, what do you think about I think people often have already been through an awful lot of struggle before they're willing to accept help. Yeah. That's I think people have to be pretty desperate to change their lives and to be willing to let others help them to do that. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think we're wired to struggle. I think I really like the line in um, Circle of Life, which is, uh, you know, flanking, which is, it's a wheel of fortune because I do believe that I don't think people deserve things or don't deserve things. Mm. I just think, yeah, wheel of fortune. But we are built for struggle and you off, yeah, my experience and the experience of other people I know is that you have to go through the struggle and get pretty, pretty desperate before you're willing to get out of your own way. Yeah. Let somebody help you because until it's desperate, you just keep putting up your own barriers. Um, yeah. And that's why step one for them is like, be willing to even think that they need help, whoever that person is, same for me. Two is a massive next step. It's like, what help is there and how do I get it? So I think by the time they come to us, They've been through a lot of that struggle already. And mm. um, I think it's really important that we don't promise that we're going to solve everyone's issues yeah. or make them help feel helpless. So we're very set on, you know, like when we do an action plan with them, once we've worked out what it is they need, we don't take all the actions for them. We give them something to do, but we'll support them yeah. to do it. Because we only work with them for, you know, a fairly short period of time in, in the grand scheme of their life. So we want to set them up for success once they've left us. Mm. Often that, I don't think that is the mentality of, of some services and some interventions for people. And it doesn't help because they just go back and back and back in the system. Yeah, yeah. And if that's as good as they can do, like, you know, good for them that they're getting that. The help is there for them. They should take it. But I don't think it's the most helpful thing to do. Uh, most people's turning points for people I know in their life is when things have got so bad and people haven't been able to help them anymore. Or like when I say people, like their friends and family, for example. Yeah, yeah. And it's made them turn to like professional help or, or this kind of thing. So, yeah, I think you've got to, uh, you've got to go through some struggle before you're even willing to say, yeah, do you know what? I need some help. Yeah. And that's why I want us to be known. Yeah. Uh, at Leaky Leads because we are ready to help when, when you go to us. And I think, you know, it's, again, it's easy for me to say that. When my well-being coordinators have that client, have that person, have that human being in front of them, it's very easy for me to say, well, you know, you set them up for success and let them go. I think it's yeah. a really difficult thing. And it's not just bad service. I hear it from other services as well, but like what mm. point do we say, right, we're, we're releasing you back into, that sounds like they're a, a rare bird, um, you know, go off and live your life kind of thing. 
it's very difficult to do that when someone is telling you I'm still really struggling. Yeah. And that's the point you've got to be humble and go, you know, what? there's only so much I can do. Mm. No, I think that's a really good point. And I'm glad you managed to formulate an answer out of my non-question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I knew what you meant. Yeah. Because it's long now, haven't we? Spreadsheet, all my can read your mind. <laughs> okay, so I, I think I've pretty much covered most of everything that I want to cover. Is there anything that we should sort of touch on that I've missed? Um, do you want to do a big, um, do you know all your social media handles and everything that you can kind of promote those? We're, I can put them in the show notes. That would be great. Uh, I will just say that we are very easy to know. Our website's www.linkingleads.com. Um, our Twitter handle is at Linking Leads. So these things are very easy to remember. Um, we have a chat on our website. We have a contact form. There's an FAQ. Our phone number is 0113 336 7612. Mm. Um, and yeah, I just, my, I guess my message is if you're struggling or you know somebody who is, like don't refer, refer them without mentioning it to them. Um, but just get in contact. There's nothing scary about it. We will welcome you. We'll have a chat with you. We'll treat you like a human being. We're not going to force you to do anything. We're not going to say, oh, you must do this. So you must turn up here. Like it's a very gentle, supportive process and there is nothing to stop you doing it. I can't promise you that will solve every single thing in your life, but there's literally nothing scary about it. But we also appreciate how hard it is to come and ask for help. Um, and you're in charge. It's massively important. So, yeah. you know, we're not going to tell you to, uh, to sort anything out or, or work with your own things that you don't want to touch. And that's, that's okay as well. But yeah, lickingleads.com. You've got to go through some struggle before you're even willing to say, yeah, do you know what? I need some help. Well, I've done the struggle and now please consider supporting this podcast further. I need champions for working hours, and that's exactly what you will be by giving £1 a month via Patreon to this podcast. That's right, it's only a quid a month for loiners to support and grow this podcast. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash working hours pod to sign up and offer regular support. Thank you again to Anna for being my guest. Thank you again to all my guests, and thanks to you, Bugalugs, for listening to this. So, If you are listening to this, then I assume that you have some connection to Leeds, like living here or being from here. If you're that person in Leeds or from Leeds and you haven't done a record for this yet, send me a message now and let's record your working hours session. Email this podcast, workinghourspod at western-studios.com with a short bio and some suggestions of your availability. Or just send me your feedback, questions, comments or queries. You can follow this show on Twitter at workinghours3 and on Instagram at workinghourspodleads. I'm really interested to hear from anyone in Leeds or from Leeds in whatever industry, sector or role you are in. What is your experience? How do you feel about work? What do you like and not like? What do you do, Leeds? Please remember to like, share, follow and subscribe to this show. Next time on Working Hours, I'll be talking to Ed from, among other things, South Leeds Life. Come back tomorrow for that same Leeds channel. Working Hours is presented, edited and recorded by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org.